In the second chapter of Yehoshua, the new prophet and leader Yehoshua dispatches two spies across the river and into the promised land. Their mission is to bring back intel on the land, and especially on Yericho, the city of Jericho, which is the first place that the nation will seek to capture. So the men come to the house of a woman named Rachav, who is identified in the verse as a zona, a prostitute, although there is a debate among the Jewish commentators whether perhaps a more apt definition of the term zona in this case is an innkeeper. However, I'm not going to focus on this subject today. Rachav's home is built within the wall of the city, and that is where they go to stay. So then the king of Yericho hears somehow about the arrival of the spies. He addresses Rachav, informs her that the men who have come to stay at her home are actually dangerous enemy spies who seek to capture the city, and he orders her to turn them over. However, Rachav hides the men. She tells the king that yes, they had come, but then they left under the cover of darkness. She advised the king to send people to pursue them, surmising that they probably hadn't gotten too far and could still be caught. So as the king's men pursued the spies outside the city, Rachav actually hid them on her rooftop. She then addressed the spies. In speaking to them, she acknowledges the power, the dominance of their god, the one who had dried up the Red Sea during the people's flight from Egypt, and the one who had brought about the destruction of the two mighty Amori kings. She acknowledges that their god has brought them there to conquer the land, and that they'll be successful in doing so. So then she asks them for a favor. She asks these spies to repay her kindness that she showed them by sparing them, and to then spare her and her family when they come again to Yericho during the conquest. She lowers them out of her window, which is out of the city, through a rope, using a rope, and she instructs them to hide for three days until the king's men return and they'll be safe to continue on their journey. So the two spies made the promise to Rachav. They instruct her to gather all of her family into the home during the time of the battle, which will come, and to tie a red string on the window through which they escaped. They tell her that everyone inside the home during this time will be spared, so long as she doesn't tell anybody of the arrangement. But anybody who leaves the house during the battle will die. So the spies flee safely across the river back to the camp of the Israelites, and they tell Yoshua everything that happened. Yoshua at that point takes heart, knowing that the native people fear the coming of his army. Now I'm going to fast forward to 1860s America during the Civil War, where a secret abolitionist pro-Union society, which calls itself the Heroes of America, is operating within the South during the war. This group is made up primarily of working-class white people, especially members of the Quaker faith. Their goal was to sabotage the Confederate war effort, also to facilitate the flight of runaway slaves from their masters, and generally to foment internal rebellion within the states of the, re of the rebellion. The group was extremely secretive. Most members only knew at most one other member to be definitely a, a, a fellow secret member of the society. 
they communicated allegiance to one another by hanging pieces of red string in their windows or on their lapels, and thus they received a popular nickname, the Red Strings. Everything I'm presenting here has been culled from a few Civil War historical sources, especially a book called Silk Flags and Cold Steel by the historian William Art Trotter. So Trotter and others report that the practice of identifying using red string that the heroes of America employed was based upon the story in the second chapter of Yehoshua, the story of the red string which Rachav will hang to save from her window to save her family during the coming battle. And to me, the symbolism is unmistakable. These members of the society, many of them, many of them joined the cause out of a deep religious conviction of the evil of slavery, that God has condemned slavery and is now bringing about its violent end. For them, the approaching Union army, which is coming and wreaking havoc in the South, is coming with a divine mission. And it's coming on a successful mission. It will win the war. For them, what they want to do is the least they can do to collaborate, to help the, the correct war effort, the divine mission. And in doing so, and in hanging this symbol of the red string from their windows and their lapels, they hope to receive, they hope to be spared, to receive divine compassion and be spared the fury of the war. The group began with Quakers in North Carolina, in parts of southwestern Virginia, and eastern Tennessee, mostly in regions with little slavery. This is significant because, aside from the Quakers' religious tradition, which was often opposed to slavery, in many, in many places and historical contexts, Quakers were among the leaders of the abolitionist movement, these were also people who were less likely to have their own livelihood bound up with the practice and the economy of slavery, and so they had less to risk in opposing it. The movement was especially strong in the Piedmont region of North Carolina, and within that region, especially within Randolph County, an area heavy with Quaker population. It was rumored that within Randolph County during the war, there were 10,000 members of the Heroes of America. The history is sort of fuzzy. Sometime in 1861, early in the war, popular pro-Union sentiment in these parts of the South coalesced into a movement. The movement, practically, their missions included protecting deserters from the Confederate Army, providing aid to Union spies and to escaped Union prisoners of war, and they informed on Confederate troop movements to <clears throat> Union spies and Union authorities. They sought to organize groups of black rebels within the Confederacy states, and they assisted the Underground Railroad in its roots of helping slaves escape the South northward. One of the prominent leaders of the Heroes of America, or the Red Strings, was a surgeon named John Lewis Johnson. And it was told in a legend that in October 1864, he on his own persuaded an entire Confederate company to desert their posts. The Union authorities knew of this society and offered them protection for their property when the South would be defeated, and even a share of confiscated assets from the Confederates. The Heroes of America created enough of a nuisance that in a number of occasions the Confederate army had to divert troops to put down mini-revolts. Their 
Almost Undoing came in 1864, when the society was suddenly exposed by the North Carolina local media during the 1864 gubernatorial race. In this election, the incumbent, Zebulon Vance, was opposed by a candidate from the peace movement named William Woods Holden. Now, the peace movement didn't mean supporting the Union, which was, of course, unacceptable in the South during wartime, but it meant a more conciliatory stance. It meant that they want that this candidate wanted to end the war and wanted to engage in negotiations with the Union to bring about some sort of peaceful solution. So the North Carolina media, likely in an effort to associate Holden, the peace movement candidate, with this secret pro-Union society, suddenly during the election season exposed and published everything they knew about the Heroes of America. And it was a huge scandal. In fact, the ploy was largely successful. Holden was totally trounced by Vance in the election and only won three counties of North Carolina, one of which was Randolph County, the stronghold of the Heroes of America. After the war ended, the Heroes of America remained engaged in the cause, opposing the growing Ku Klux Klan in the chaotic Reconstruction Era South. They largely remained secretive and scandalous, even after the war ended and the Union had been reunited. Another interesting, another interesting follow-up on the story is that in Yadkin County, North Carolina, in the years following the war, a baseball team emerged called the Red Strings, and some of its players had actually been educated in Quaker schools. Many suspected that this team had some sort of association with the secret pro-Union society. However, the team denied any link. Now I'll transition to a Jewish context. There is a popular practice, which I've encountered a lot, and I'm sure many listeners have as well, of tying a red string around one's wrist. This red string, otherwise known as a red bendel in Yiddish, it bendel is the Yiddish word, not red, is worn by many Jews as an omen against the ayin hara, the evil eye. It's supposed to bring good luck. It's considered to be dangerous to take off the string before it falls off on its own. It also has a particular association with Kever Rachel, the tomb of Rachel in Bethlehem. Many red string vendors tell how they first bring the string to the tomb and infuse it there with its special power. It's an especially popular phenomenon, in my experience, among people visiting Israel. People visit Israel and come back home with this red string. So although it's popular in some circles, there are others who denounce it as an un-Jewish superstition. However, it's an interesting cultural phenomenon to pay attention to. I've encountered two sources which link this practice of the red string around the wrist to the story in the second chapter of Yehoshua, of the red string that Rachav hangs from her window. Um, one is an article in published in 2008 by a, an anthropologist at the University of Pennsylvania named Ellie Tiemann. Tiemann observed that the practice of the red string seemed to reach a climax in the, in the 1990s, in the years following the first intifada, when terrorism and local warfare and the general sense of physical insecurity in Israel became this ever-present reality in the daily lives of Israelis. The string then 
arose as a sort of response, as a spiritual response, seeking protection. Tiemann observed that there's actually an interesting history to the red thread, which can be traced to so many different places. Red thread, red string, has been used symbolically in Greek and Egyptian mythology, in ancient Chinese legends, and in folk traditions from England, Wales, and Ireland. It's often considered to be a protective symbol, as red is the color of life. Tying up the string in a circle symbolizes closure and sealing off from dangers. So Tiemann, in her article in 2008, it's called The Red String, The Cultural History of a Jewish Folk Symbol, published in a journal called Jewish Cultural Studies. She sketches the general history of the symbol both in Jewish folklore and in other societies' traditions. And one of the many roots that she points to in the provenance of this tradition is biblical appearances of the term chut hashani, or crimson thread, red string. Um, in one case, there in the story in the 38th chapter of Breshit, uh, at the time of the birth of the twins, Zerach and Peretz, born to Yehuda and Tamar, Tamar is instructed to tie a red string around the wrist of Zerach. And there is our story in the second chapter of Yehoshua with the window of Rachav. In both of these cases, the string seems to be setting boundaries between the chosen son, in the case of Zerach, and the unchosen son. And in the case of Rachav, between the redeemed and the forsaken, the rest of the city of Yericho, which will be destined for destruction. The string also appears in the books of Vayikra and Bamidbar with a different term, to, which is actually Shni Tola'at, as opposed to Chut Hashani. And there it's used to, it's used as a part of purification rituals, which again signifies a certain kind of spiritual boundary. I also came across a 2011 article on Mako, which is an Israeli news website, by an author named Yitzchak Aharon, in which he tries to trace the roots of the red string practice and comes upon the Rachav story as a likely contender. That's all for the second chapter of Yoshua. Thank you for listening, and please join me next week for the third chapter in the story of crossing the Arden, the Jordan River.